Hi, and welcome to Procedure Ready OBGYN, a podcast aimed at helping you excel during your clinical clerkship in OBGYN. My name is Dr. Jennifer Dory. I'm an assistant professor of obstetrics and gynecology at the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine and former resident at Thomas Jefferson University Hospital. I'm the founder of Procedure Ready, a collection of resources aimed to advance your clinical medical education. Let's get started. We're going to be talking about what you need to know before you attend your first cesarean section. So the first thing to know before you walk into the OR is obviously why. Why are we doing the C-section? Is it scheduled? Is it emergent or urgent because the patient was in labor and something's going wrong? So the most common reasons we do C-sections in the U.S. are actually repeat cesarean sections. So people who have had C-sections before are always offered a repeat C-section because there are inherent risks of trying to labor after you've had a prior C-section. So some people will just choose to have a scheduled repeat C-section, typically somewhere right around 39 weeks, because you don't want them going past their due date and risking going into labor and having it to a C-section be in the middle of the night. Other common reasons for scheduled C-sections are histories of uterine surgery, mainly meaning like myomectomy and things, abnormal placentation, meaning a placenta previa, a vasa previa, an accreta, increta, or percreta, malpresentation, meaning baby is not head down, not cephalic, so breech or transverse presentation, or multiple gestation in which one of the babies is likely not head down or is not in an adequate position for labor. Um, People that are in labor and get sections called um, typically happen for a couple reasons. One, their cervix was dilating and no longer is. That's caused an arrest of dilation. There's, um, they could also be pushing and have the baby not coming down the way they should. That's called an arrest of descent. And the baby could not be tolerating labor well, meaning non-reassuring fetal heart tones or fetal intolerance to labor. Those are the keywords. The other thing is some places and some providers will offer what's called an elective C-section for somebody who has never had a C-section or doesn't have any other indication, but is just saying they don't want to labor for whatever reason. Um, ACOG, our governing body, says it's reasonable to offer elective C-sections for um, moms. Not all providers will agree to do them, so this is sort of a personal choice and, again, needs to be after 39 weeks. So let's talk about getting into the OR. So you're going to meet the patient before you go back to the OR. You're going to say hello, introduce yourself as a student, part of the team. You're just there. And I usually tell students, tell the patient you're there to help out and just assist the surgeon, but make sure it's clear you're not doing the surgery. Um, I rarely get students turned away from C-sections. Once you get to the OR, you're going to help the um, surgical team move the patient over to the operating room or the operating table from their um, bed that they were previously on. They'll probably need a Foley catheter, so that might already be in if they were laboring, or it might need to be put in after they are um, anesthetized, either with the spinal or by dosing their epidural. Um, you can help get on their foot pumps if they need, you know, for DVT prophylaxis, make sure you grab your own gown and gloves or ask the scrub tech if you need, if they need you to grab your own gown and gloves so that you're ready to scrub into the procedure. Um, and then just be generally be out of the way when you're not helping and ask how you can help otherwise, depending on your surgical team and where you're doing your rotation. They may, it may be a well-oiled machine or they may need your help with a lot of this. You'll get the feel for it as you do a couple of them. So let's say we're starting the procedure. 
Step one, we clean off uh, mom's belly. We use usually chlorhexidine, a surgical grade soap. Chlorhexidine is a alcohol-based soap. This thing has to dry for three minutes. The reason being it's alcohol-based. So if we put up drapes and we trap these alcohol vapors underneath the drapes, there's at risk of catching a spark from the bovie or from electrocautery and actually setting the patient and in case report setting the ET tube, the um, endotracheal intubation tube on fire. So we wait three minutes and then we can go out and scrub. Then we come back, we Everybody gets in their gown and their gloves, and then we drape the patient. They get draped, and then we're getting ready to actually start. This is one of the few surgical procedures you'll be in where mom, will, the patient, will be awake throughout the procedure. So this is just one more place in the hospital where you really have to be conscious of the fact that the patient is aware of everything that's being said. This is probably one of the worst places to say an oops or an I'm sorry or my bad during the surgery. You want to make sure that you're keeping it professional at all times because she can hear you and so can the dad. Um, just keep that in mind as you're operating. I know it's it's easy to relax in the OR, but this is somewhere that the patient is aware of everything. So we're going to uh, begin with making the incision. The incision for a C-section goes two finger breasts above the pubic symphysis um, generally and extends out laterally for, uh, each side about seven centimeters for a total of 14 centimeters. Depending on the size of the baby, you might get away with 10 centimeters, um, but on average, they tend to be somewhere between 10 and 14 so if they have a prior incision, you're going to try to just use that so you're not creating additional incisions on mom's abdomen. So they're going to make the initial skin incision with the knife. Before so, before doing so, they're going to actually test mom with an Alice clamp. They're going to pinch her belly going all the way up to the umbilicus to make sure she's numb. And she can probably feel the touch of it, but she shouldn't feel the pain. So now we go back. We're actually starting. We make our incision with the knife. Um, and then two different ways to continue the incision down through the subcutaneous fat. Some people will continue it down with the knife. Other people will go down with the bovie or electrocautery to try to prevent bleeding. We know that as we continue down through the subcutaneous fat, there are going to be two large perforating vessels laterally um, and expect to see these bleed in sections where you have to go quickly or you're not expecting to see them. But otherwise, people tend to go slowly, attempt to cauterize them along the way. Then you get down, you get through the superficial fascia, which is going to be campers and scarpas. Um, then you get to your external, uh, you get to your um, rectus fascia, your external oblique muscle, your internal oblique muscle, your transversus abdominis, and your transversalis fascia. All of those things we go through, and then we get to our preperitoneal fat and then our peritoneum. So the way we actually go through all these layers is we usually use the knife or the bovie to go all the way down, make an incision in the fascia. We use mayo scissors, big cutting scissors, to extend the fascial incision out laterally on both sides. Um, we then dissect the muscle off of the fascia to um, make room to really release it um, anteriorly. And then we spread the fascia. And this looks really rough, but it actually, by naturally spreading rather than cutting the um, the muscles apart and stretching the incision into the abdomen, you're allowing the tissues to tear along the naturally vulnerable planes and allowing the, the tissue to split where it is not strong rather than making an additional weak point by cutting somewhere that is strong. So there's quite a bit of stretching and tearing that you'll see during the during C-sections, but um, it is for the, the reason of, of allowing tissues to tear where, where they're naturally weak, so we're not creating additional weak sp spots. So when we get there, we usually enter the peritoneum sump 
people do it bluntly, some people do it sharply, meaning sometimes it's just digging with a finger, um, and other times it's using scissors or something to get into the peritoneum. Again, we then typically stretch, make a big, um, a larger hole in the peritoneum, and allow for better visualization. Once you're through the peritoneum, you should be at the uterus. A gravid uterus should really be at the top of um, your abdomen, as opposed to during GYN surgery, the first thing you're probably going to see is either bowel or omentum. But typically for C-sections, if as long as it's not a repeat and there's not a lot of scarring, you're going to be right at the uterus now. So um, with that, we're going to put in what's called a bladder blade, which is just a lower retractor um, that's going to retract the bladder and the mons away from the lower uterine segment. We're also going to use a retractor to elevate the top um, portion of the abdomen. Your job will probably be to hold the bladder blade during this section, and they'll, they'll, tell, they'll tell you when to put it in, when to take it out, but you're probably going to be helping with that and with um, suction for visualization throughout. Um, so... There might be some adhesions or things they have to get through, but typically you're right about here at the uterus here. Now we have two options. So on top of the uterus, the lower uterine segment is the bladder. So we need to make sure that the bladder is down and away from where we're going to make our incision, which is pretty low usually on the uterus. The lower portion of the uterus tends to have thinner myometrium, which means less bleeding, less strength to the myometrium, uh, and less likely it will rupture should she labor um, in a subsequent pregnancy. So depending on how high the bladder is or if it looks like it's going to be involved where we need to be operating, sometimes we'll create what's called a bladder flap, which means an incision in the vesico-uterine peritoneum to then just allow that bladder to fall down and away from the uterus. Once we feel like we have enough space in our uh, lower uterine segment, We'll go ahead and usually um, draw out where we're going to make our hysterotomy, make sure everybody's ready, make sure neonatology or pediatrics is there present for the delivery um, so that there is a separate physician just for the baby and one, at least one just for mom. So then we make our hysterotomy, um, and this is just, as it sounds, an otomy in the hyster, so it's just a hole in the uterus. We're cutting open the uterus, and it's usually in a low transverse um, plane. The only reason we don't do a low transverse cesarean section is typically smaller babies where there's not enough space in that lower uterine segment. The lower uterine segment is limited by the lateral vessels. And so on the sides of, on either side of that lower uterine segment run the large uterine vessels. And these vessels supply a lot of blood during pregnancy. These are, this is the blood supply to the entire fetus. So this is supporting a human being at this point. Um, so these blood vessels can bleed and bleed terribly. So we're trying our best to avoid them. So for this reason, most people will curve the incision, the hysterotomy up, up to the side like a big smiley face. Um, you can either do this with a knife or you can do this. Some people will actually use um, bandage scissors and cut it up to make sure they avoid those uh, uterine vessels. Um, and you're also avoiding that upper portion of the uterus, which is going to have thicker, bloodier myometrium that'll be more likely to rupture should, she, should the patient ever labor again. Now we should be at the... Um, amnion, the amniotic sac, unless we've accidentally ruptured it while entering the uterus. So we're going to rupture the um, amniotic sac or AROM as we call it. And then we're going to deliver the baby. If the baby is cephalic, we're just going to, one person's going to stick their hand in, elevate the baby's head to the level of the hysterotomy and ask for fundal pressure. The second person at the table is going to give us a lot of pressure up at the mom's top of the mom's abdomen um, and help deliver the baby. And you'll be really surprised. So after the baby comes out, you will look down and see the hysterotomy and you will see it bleeding 
and it looks like it's bleeding terribly. It's one of probably the bloodiest surgeries you will see. And this is just because of how very well vascularized the uterus is during a term pregnancy. And it needs to be this well vascularized for baby. Um, so don't be surprised if it seems like one of the bloodier surgeries you've, you've seen as a third year. Um, we will delay cord clamp typically, uh, depending on your institution, for 15 seconds to 60 seconds for term infants and at least 60 seconds for preterm infants. Um, after that time has passed, we cut and clamp the cord. Baby goes off with the pediatricians, and our focus is solely on mom. At this point, we get a little bit of cord blood so we don't have to stick baby later and then get ready to deliver the placenta. We can expedite delivering the placenta by um, providing a lot of uh, uterine massage. Mm. And we also ask for Pitocin at this time from anesthesia. So at this time, we're also assessing the uterine tone. We're concerned. Once the placenta comes out, we can tell if there's any significant atony. This will be really common in uh, sections for things like arrest of dilation or arrest of descent, meaning the uterus has been working hard for a long time, and now we're asking it to work even harder at the end. Similar things that would cause um, atony at the time of a vaginal delivery. So infection, if somebody has um, chorioamnionitis, or what's now being called triple I, um, they're at higher risk for atony, if they've been in labor a long time, if they've been on a lot of Pitocin, if they've been pushing a long time. All of these are risk factors for worse bleeding. Um, so if so, we're using the same medications that we will use in a vaginal delivery. So let's run through this one more time because this will be really common questions that you'll get both during vaginal and C-sections, but also on your um, shelves. So the first medication we use for everybody is Pitocin or Oxytocin. Um, we use that uh, as a free-flowing infusion after delivery. If you don't have IV access, obviously not in the case of a C-section, hopefully, you can also give an IM, an intramuscular injection of 10 units as well. Um, once the Pitocin is running, if you still have acne, you've got three other medications to choose from. Most people's first line is going to be mesoprostol. Um, that's going to be a prostaglandin analog. It's going to cause um, uterine cramping and contraction and then um, the downside is that it can cause some transient fevers um, that are non-infectious in origin. Mesoprostol, the only problem during a C-section is it's typically administered um, rectally or buccally, but the rectum is usually typically difficult to access at this point in a section. She's laying supine on an OR table. Um, it can be accessed um, via usually one of the circulating nurses, but it just takes a little bit of time. And at this point, the uh, moms are usually laying down a little bit nauseous um, from their spinal and are not eager to have any pills in their mouth that we worry about them aspirating or that could make them increasingly nauseous at this point in the procedure. So mesoprostol can be a little bit difficult. So our other good options are methergen, Methergen is an intramuscular injection, typically, um, and it is contraindicated in people with elevated blood pressures. So all of these people you see with gestational hypertension, preeclampsia, chronic hypertension, all of those, it's a relative contraindication. So you can still use it if it's, if it's really very necessary. It's not an absolute contraindication, but it is a strong relative contraindication because it will cause reflex hypertension as well. Your third option is hemabate. Hemabate is also an intramuscular injection. It can also be an intramyometrial, so you can inject it directly into the myometrium during a C-section. Um, hemabate is contraindicated in asthma. Um, it can cause bronchodi or bronchoconstriction and um, 
asthma attacks in people who are predisposed to asthma. Um, the other negative side effect is usually explosive diarrhea, for better or worse. Some of these moms are constipated and don't mind it so much, but you will occasionally have a code brown before you even get and move her off the OR table. So not usually people's first choice. So those are your, our four medications. So like we said, we said mesoprostol, well, first Pitocin for everybody, then mesoprostol is number two, then methogen or hemabate as needed. Um, the other thing that we can do because we have mom's abdomen open, if there's continued acne, we can do some surgical maneuvers to assist with um, hemostasis. So we can place some sutures around those uterine um, arteries that we discussed um, to attempt to control blood flow, and which is called an O'Leary. Um, we can essentially do a stitch that attempts to put tension on the fundus of the uterus. It looks like essentially putting suspenders on the uterus, for lack of a better way to describe it. Um, and that one is called a B-Lynch suture. Um, these are things that you can do after the hysterotomy is already closed if you just need better uh, hemostasis and you just have severe acne after you've already run through all your other available and appropriate, not contraindicated medications for acne. Um, but let's talk quickly about the hysterotomy. So one of the first things you should do to help control uh, bleeding is just close the hysterotomy. It's open myometrium. That stuff bleeds like stink. So um, there's going to be usually this portion of the procedure is going to go a little bit fast. So people are going to start sewing quickly. And it's difficult, I think, as a med student to get the feel of how this goes and figure out how to be helpful while also not putting yourself at risk for a needle stick. Um, so typically baby's out, Placenta's out at this point, and we're probably going to what's called exteriorize the uterus or remove the uterus through the abdominal incision so we can better see it. We can clean it um, with some laps. We'll put the bladder blade back in to sub, um, remove the mons and the subcutaneous tissue and things away from that hysterotomy and allow better visualization. Um, and this is you're going to, again, hold that bladder blade. You're going to help with that. And then um, you're typically going to either use the suction or a clean lap to try to help the surgeon visualize the hysterotomy in between sutures. So they're going to be suturing, holding the suture, holding um, pickups in one hand and the needle driver with the suture in the other. So it's really helpful if you as an extra hand can help them visualize the different edges of the myometrium better to put it back together. Um, but again, trying to do this in a way that doesn't put you at risk for a needle stick. You got to stay safe. Um, there are, we will typically close the hysterotomy in two layers. So we'll do first layer, it's running and locking. Um, and the locking portion of the suture is what's going to help give us additional hemostasis. And then we'll typically do a second layer on top of the hysterotomy, regardless of if it needs it for his, uh, hemostasis, because uh, a two layer, show, two layer closure, um, we believe is better for people who are going to labor on, uh, potentially labor again in the future. Um, so you're going to probably do a second layer. Then we're going to make sure, again, the uh, hysterotomy is hemostatic. Some people will have to throw some what's called figure of eights or additional little sutures to make sure it's hemostatic. And then we're usually going to turn our attention to the abdomen and clean the abdomen in some way. Because like you saw, it bled a lot. So there's probably some blood collected down in the gutters, down in the abdomen. So some people will use irrigation and suction it out. Other people will just use moist laps, throw them down there, pull them out, essentially try to grab all the blood clots that way. Other people... Um, will just suction out what they can see and kind of scoop out any um, coagulated blood clots that they can. We'll put the uterus back in, again, ensure hemostasis, and then it's time to close. So when it's time to close, now what do we close? We've already closed the hysterotomy. So now the layer's going back out. The next layer is um, if we made a bladder flap. Do we close the bladder flap? 
And this is some people do, some people don't. There's no strong evidence for closing the bladder flap. Closing the bladder flap, there's some evidence to suggest that it actually increases your risk of bladder injury rather than reducing it. So most people will not close the bladder flap. The next thing you have, and that was your vesicouterine um, peritoneum. Now you've got your anterior abdominal peritoneum. We went through that as well. The evidence for this is mixed again. So there's no evidence that it, um, it reduces adhesions, which is what people originally thought, that it would reduce the number of things that could stick to each other, like your uterus sticking to your... Um, to your rectus muscles or things like that, which we occasionally see in C-sections. But the studies haven't borne this out. So there's no evidence that it does any harm to close it, but there's no evidence that it does any good. So this is totally personal preference. The next thing you'll see is the um, muscle. So again, some people will close the rectus muscles. There is no evidence that this is beneficial in any way. And actually, there's evidence against it. There's evidence that closing the muscle, putting a needle and putting inflammatory suture through the muscle can actually increase your risk of getting a postpartum rectus sheath hematoma. So most people will not close the muscle. I know it probably looks silly and maybe barbaric that we're leaving these muscles way apart. These women are going to have rectus muscle diastases, but there's it's for their own good. It's because they can develop a huge hematoma that is incredibly painful and detrimental to their health. So we typically leave the muscle alone. The next layer is the fascia. Obviously, we need to close this, and we need to close this well so that they don't get a hernia. And the one thing um, that you need to know about closing the fascia is, well, one, there's two layers to it. And number two, the most likely um, area to cause lingering pain and issues is the apex of the fascial incision. So the lateral edge of the fascial incision, right out by these lateral edges, when people go too lateral, when the incision is um, extended too laterally, because say it's a large baby, um, there are two... Uh, nerves just above the fascia out there that can be either transected or um, entrapped within the suture. And if the suture catches this um, and the nerves get tied into the suture, the patient will likely have stabbing or searing pain for a while, several weeks until the suture begins to dissolve. These two nerves are the ilioinguinal nerve and the iliohypogastric. I don't think I've ever heard any attendings or residents actually ask medical students that in the OR, but as a resident, I have been asked that myself, um, but probably not something you will hear a whole lot about, but you'll look real smart if you do get asked that. So ilioinguinal and iliohypogastric. Um, now that we've closed the fascia, we are at the subcutaneous tissue. So we're going to rinse this out really well to try to prevent any infection. Um, and then if it's greater than two centimeters in depth, we want to close this space because it's a potential space now. We've made an opening. And this is going to be a great place for the collection of um, a hematoma or a seroma. And hematomas and seromas are wonderfully protein-rich places for infection. So closing the space, if it is greater than two centimeters in depth, has been shown to decrease the um, risk of a post-op wound infection. Um, so typically, for most of our patients these days, this is going to get closed in some way. And then we are at the skin, and you can close the skin in staples. There's the normal metal staples that you've seen. You can close it with suture in a running fashion. You can close it with these newer um, absorbable staples that actually go beneath the skin called insorb. They're made with the same things as vicral sutures. Those are just quite expensive. Um, but in studies, there's no difference in cosmesis postpartum between staples, sutures, and these absorbable ones. So it's dealer's choice on that. 
then you're going to help clean up mom, get her all set, get her moved over. Um, tell her congratulations like 57 times like we all do. Um, and then tell her that you will probably be seeing her in the morning to round on her and check on her uh, and answer any questions she may or may not have. Mom will usually have received a little bit of some type of relaxant. It might be Versed. It might be something else during the second part of the C-section so she can kind of sleep through um, the closing portion of the section. So she might be a little loopy, probably need help moving from the OR bed over to her postpartum bed and everything. So be helpful with as much as you can. And then just be ready to round on her and see her in the morning. Things to address on postpartum rounds when you see her in the morning are going to be the normal things. Make sure she doesn't have any um, fundal tenderness, that her uterus is small, that the incision looks good, doesn't look like it's bleeding. Um, I always check all postpartum women to make sure they don't have any calf tenderness because they're at high risk of DVTs. Um, see how breastfeeding's going, tell them about the warning signs for mastitis, um, and then make sure they're up and moving around and get their Foley out and everything so that they're not um, stuck in bed and at risk for getting a pneumonia or anything. The other thing that is super helpful, if they haven't already picked out their form of postpartum birth control, if you know your birth control um, or can just print out a simple information sheet from bedsider.org, which is one of my favorite websites for patients and for medical students, it walks you through all the birth control, you can be a great resource for helping moms figure out what they want to do for birth control postpartum. Uh, it's something that they often don't want to talk to us residents about when we round on them at 5 a.m. I don't imagine I'd want to talk about it at 5 a.m. as a postpartum mom either. So I understand, but we often don't have time to go back and readdress it with them. So if you've downtime during the day or in the afternoon, uh, ask your resident, ask your uppers if it's okay for you to run. If you know your um, any of your postpartum patients that you help deliver were unsure about birth control, if you could go have a quick chat with her um, and just kind of be proactive and be helpful. We do find it super helpful. Thanks for listening to Procedure Ready OBGYN. Hope you found today's podcast helpful. Don't forget to subscribe below, rate the podcast, and leave me a review. Your reviews seriously make my day, every time. Have you done your pediatrics rotation yet? We just launched a new Clerkship Ready Pediatrics podcast to help. We're always looking for new collaborators. If you know a phenomenal medical educator who should make a Procedure Ready or Clerkship Ready podcast for their specialty, pass along their information and we'll see if they want to collaborate. Finally, check us out at ProcedureReady.com for more helpful resources like our flashcard deck and our YouTube playlist.